Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, political director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, and speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's episode, we have a conversation with Representative Robin Chestnut Tangerman of Middletown Springs about a bill he is the lead sponsor on that would ban the use of neonicotinoid pesticides. Later, I chat with Senator Rebecca White and Representative Gabrielle Stebbins, co-chairs of the Climate Solutions Caucus, for an overview of their priorities and how they function to pass critical climate policies. But first, I want to bring in Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, into the fold for our Session Shakedown segment, where we recap the last week in the State House and give a preview of what's in store. Hello, Lauren, and happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. It's the big weekend. <laughs> Well, let's chat about uh, the week. So testimony continued on a bill to modernize the renewable energy standard. And the House heard from a number of electric utility leaders, including large and smaller rural and cooperative utilities. And the House and Senate saw testimony on the Act 250 bills, including from you and our partners at Vermont Natural Resources Council. How did that all go? Yeah, there were some Great conversations this week on a bunch of our priority issues. Uh, the renewable energy standard, they, I think, are getting close. We're anticipating um, a vote soon on that bill through the House Environment and Energy Committee. Uh, one of the issues they've been trying to work through um, this past week has been trying to make sure that affordable housing developers will be able to have a successful program um, to do group net metering so people um, that are you know buying into those housing projects will have access to clean energy like other homeowners do. So that's a, a really important piece that trying to, to hammer through and get to a resolution, um, but it looks like there's some progress there. So that's great. Um, and then on Act 250, lots of committees are talking about it. And, you know, of course, with the housing crisis being front and center and um, the climate crisis and, you know, trying to figure out how do we map out pathways for Vermont to um, allow more housing development in smart growth locations and simultaneously do that in climate smart ways. So I think there were some really good um there was a lot of good testimony and progress really kind of hashing through, you know, what is what kind of package could we put forward um, looking at the Natural Resources Board uh, working group report as a real framework for that conversation. And it seems like kind of momentum's picking up there, but a lot of work to do to get kind of words on paper and hash through the details. Yes, and uh, last week's guest, VNRC's Karina Daly, testified on last Thursday on S213. What does that bill hope to achieve? So that bill is um, what we've been calling a, a climate resilience bill 
because it is looking at um, how we're protecting our waterways uh, and particularly making sure that uh, we're managing our rivers and wetlands and dams in ways that will reduce flood risk. So, you know, let's make sure that we're not developing in river corridors. Let's protect wetlands, which act as sponges on the landscape, and let's manage dams better, take out ones that make flooding worse, and make sure other ones are being protected. Um, and so that bill continues to have good progress. Uh, the committee has been working through the details of that, and it seems like it's it's kind of on track for hopefully in the next week or two moving through that committee. Um, but you know, you, you never know with these things. But so far, some really uh, positive conversations about the role those policies can play in helping um, address flood resilience for our communities. In some less positive and more frustrating news, the modernized bottle bill, H-158, failed to receive enough votes in the Senate to override the governor's veto. You've worked on this movement for a very long time. Do you think there's a path forward for this bill next biennium? Oh, there's always another biennium. Um, Yeah, I mean, in the glass half full version, this bill got closer to passage than it ever has before. Um, You know, and I think that Obviously, there was still some work to do to get the, you know, two-thirds votes in the Senate um, that's necessary to override a veto. Um, But I think there were a lot of important policy breakthroughs um, that made this bill stronger um, and the kind of thing that should be able to garner um, broad support. So I'm optimistic that with, um, with more time and, you know, doing some more tweaks to it that we could actually get it, uh, get it enacted, because I think you know, we've got this program and this legislation will make it just more effective at doing what it does well, which is, you know, recycling bottles and cans, uh, keeping them out of the waste stream and making sure that they're truly recycled instead of uh, being downcycled like a lot of products are that go through our single stream recycling program. So, I, you know, in this kind of work, you got to be ever optimistic. (laughs) Yes. And I talked to Senator White about that in our conversation that you can hear a little bit later. Um, And so she's got some good strategy around that as well. So sounds like we'll do a more in-depth conversation sometime during this season of the podcast and kind of really examine it. I think it's, it, it's worthwhile to, it's got such a long storied history in the house and Senate. Yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of years. So I think there's some great history you could dig up on what, what these campaigns have been like. And in, in brighter news, a bill introduced by representative Emily Kornheiser of Brattleboro uh, about an income tax surcharge got some really great press coverage last week in the New York times. You spoke at a press conference about it as well. Why are we getting involved in a bill that's about income tax? Yeah, VCV has um, for a number of years uh, been in conversation with organizations that do a lot more work in tax reform policy, which, you know, is not our bailiwick. Um, But consistently when we're looking at environmental issues, the biggest hurdle is often having the funding to, you know, invest in clean water projects, invest in resilience, support clean energy, you know, whatever we're doing, it takes money. And often we would, you know, end up in these what felt like just ridiculous fights where it'd be like, well, we can only either have housing or a healthy environment or, you know, so 
for a while, we've been trying to figure out, okay, are there ways to look at the tax code, um, knowing that there's massive income inequality in the country and huge issues that we're facing. And so there's, there's a number of ideas that um, I think are being put forward this year, looking at how do you tax wealth or um, high incomes, or you know, so I think there's a bunch of different ways to, to possibly raise more revenue um, and simultaneously be doing it in a way that is progressive and that um, is you know, having those who have the most paying in some more so that we can um, support when so many people are struggling so much right now. Sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> and in looking forward to this upcoming week, what uh, can we expect? Yeah, so, um, you know, continuing to see, hopefully, a vote on um, the renewable energy standard. Hopefully that will move forward um, this week or next. Uh, again, I think we should be getting close to movement on the resilience bill. I think it'll still be a, a couple more weeks of... Uh, Act 250 work. There's a lot of details there to work through. And soon we're hoping to see the Make Big Oil Pay campaign um, also taken up in Senate Judiciary, um, but that is likely to be next week. So just continuing to try to keep, um, keep progress going on a whole bunch of our priority bills. And we'll have updates next Monday, of course, for you all, and on Instagram on Friday. Uh, closing us out, what do you, who do you have for your deep dive segment this week? Yeah, I have talked to Representative Robin Chestnut Tangerman. Um, in particular, wanted to get folks an overview of a bill to protect pollinators like birds and bees. So let's go hear that conversation now. I am delighted to be here with Representative Robin Chestnut Tangerman of Middletown Springs. And uh, Representative Chestnut Tangerman has been a longtime Vermont conservation voters, friend and ally, a lot of shared vision and values, and we've had the pleasure of working together in the State House and working together to make sure uh, that Robin would get reelected, and we're so happy that he is here. And so why don't you just tell us, I know that one of the bills we're really excited to partner on this year is a bill to ban, um, over time, neonicotinoid treated seeds. Can you tell us about that, Bill, and why yeah. it's a priority of yours? Well, thank you, Lauren, for the opportunity to be here, and uh, and I, I love our our shared history, shared interests. Uh, this is the first opportunity that I think we have to have a really impactful neonicotinoid bill. Um, we've been able to have some success with banning some pesticide sales over the counter. Um, we've had some largely feel-good pollinator protection bills, um, but this is the first time that I think we can have a real impact on pollinator protection across the board. Um, the bill is modeled on New York's bill, which was uh, just signed into law by the governor, um, and it provides a, uh, a transition time for farmers, suppliers, manufacturers, and distributors to um, develop and market new products that don't include neonicotinoid, neonic, neonics. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason everyone just says yeah, neonics. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and that's a window till January, 20, January 1st, 2029. So it's a five-year mm -hmm. ramp. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, we'd like a tighter timeline, but, uh, but it's really important that we get this right. Um, and that includes protecting farmers. Um, 
But the science um, that has been done so far is that the benefits of neonics are really of uh, not proven. Hmm. Um, the negative impacts on pollinators are are proven. Um, neonics can be really helpful in some instances, but as a general routine treatment, probably not necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and fortunately, we have the experience of Ontario and Quebec to look at where they've been banned since 2019. So we have actual on-the-ground evidence in cold climates um, with uh, intensive agriculture. Um, and that's really exciting to have this you know, proof of, of effect. And, and uh, farmers there are not having a difficulty getting untreated seed. They're not having uh, crop losses. So that's all very encouraging yeah. um, and, uh, and looking forward to developing the, the same data sets in New York and then Vermont. That's great. So where does the bill stand now? So um, both Senate and House Agriculture Committees have been doing background work. Um, they've been having testimony from the Agricultural Innovation Board, which was tasked with developing best practices for neonic use. Um, they've been talking with Vermont beekeepers, um, just sort of learning about pesticides, about pollinators, and neonics in general. Um, I've just been asked to introduce the bill in House Ag this coming Wednesday. Oh, great. Um, and then uh, we'll get people in to testify on it. Um, and it, the bill is, uh, the, the greatest use of neonics is in treated seeds. Um, but this bill also addresses its use as a foliar, uh, foliar applicants, applications, um, prohibiting both of those. Oh, great. Um, yeah. And there are other uses. It's used uh, injected into trees for some treatments. Um, it's used in golf courses and turf farms. So there are a lot of different uses of it. But the largest use is treated seeds. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this is so important um, that New York has introduced this bill is New York has a million acres of uh, under cultivation with treated seeds. That is enough to drive innovation and change. Yeah. Uh, Vermont has, I believe it's 90,000 acres of yeah. uh, land planted with treated seeds. And, um, and if we were to ban neonics on our own, the seed companies would say, fine, we won't sell in Vermont. Yeah. Um, but by combining forces with New York, we can really have a, uh, a much larger impact and success. Yeah, yeah, the market will step up to, to meet the <laughs> yeah. demand. That's great. Well, really excited to see this. I know, you know, VCV's long worked on trying to reduce exposure to toxic chemicals, things like PFAS, chemicals and other things. And, you know, getting at pesticides has always been so important and really difficult. And so I'm excited to see the momentum behind this bill and um, was, was yeah. glad to put this on our environmental common agenda this year as a priority. And I just want to give uh, VCV a shout out as a member of Protect Our Pollinators, which is a group of uh, 13 advocacy organizations uh, already working on this issue and have been for a while. Uh, so it's great to have that kind of uh, unity and, yeah. and organization uh, behind this issue. Yeah. And, uh, and it's really exciting to be a part of it. That's great. Well, thank you for your leadership on this issue and so many others and grateful for your time today and hope, uh, hope you have a great weekend. Well, thank you. Take care. 
And now it's time for my interview with co-chairs of the Climate Solutions Caucus, Senator Rebecca White and Representative Gabrielle Stebbins. Senator White is a Democrat representing the Windsor District, which includes all of Windsor County except for the town of Rochester, plus the Rutland County town of Pittsfield and the Orange County town of Thetford. She is a lifelong Vermonter growing up in Hartford and attending the University of Vermont. She began her career as an organizer for a local solar company, then worked as a community engagement manager for Efficiency Vermont. She was elected to her select board at age 20 and served two terms before being elected to the legislature as a state representative in 2018. She served on the House Transportation Committee during her four years as state representative before seeking election to the state Senate. She began her term in 2023 and serves on the Senate Committee on Natural Resources and Energy and the Senate Committee on Government Operations. Representative Stebbins is a Democrat representing the Chittenden 13 District in Burlington's South End. Not only is she a classical violinist, but she's also led a varied career as a counselor at a woman's health clinic, a researcher on child labor and human rights issues, a park ranger, a river restoration manager, a community organizer addressing air quality and public safety, an energy efficiency program coordinator, and executive director of Vermont's Renewable Energy Trade Association. When not at the legislature, she works as a managing consultant at the Heinsberg-based Energy Futures Group, where she assists residents, communities, and utilities in efficiently shifting to renewable energy. She was elected in 2020 and serves on the House Committee on Environment and Energy. Senator White has a lifetime environmental voting score of 94%, only because of some absences, while Representative Stebbins holds a 100%. Welcome back to the podcast, you two. Thank you. Hello. Hi, (laughs) Senator White. Can you describe what the Climate Solutions Caucus is and what role it plays in the legislature? Sure. Well, yeah. First of all, thanks, Justin, for having uh, the two co-chairs of the Climate Solutions Caucus on the podcast. Uh, And that's where I can start with what the Climate Solutions Caucus does. We are a, a group of legislators who are looking for solutions to the climate crisis. The structure of a caucus is that we are a nonpartisan uh, collection of legislators who go to meetings every other Thursday, structurally, but we are the largest caucus of the legislature, so we are very unique compared to a lot of the other caucuses. Caucuses have the ability to call a caucus. That's kind of the most unique thing about them, meaning they can pull together the membership of their caucus uh, during a vote or like before a vote. Uh, or to have a conversation on the floor with their membership, like a, a calling, uh, calling a caucus at in, in session. So there's something special about an actual caucus in that way. Um, we have a leadership team that created the priorities document this year. Uh, and every year that the Climate Solutions Caucus has existed, it's kind of added or changed a little bit because it's a reflection of the people and policy choices that need to be made in that year. So I know um, for Rep. Stebbins and I, we took a lot of what the Climate Solutions Caucus looks like now from our predecessors, who were who are the former Rep., now Secretary of State, Sarah Copenhansis, and then um, Senator Chris Pearson. So we do choose to have a House and a Senate chair. Um, because we feel that that's an important role that the caucus can play is between the two bodies um, of the House and the Senate. So I'd say that's what we do. Yeah. So you said you're the largest caucus. Um, How many legislative members do you have? 
We have over 90. I'm looking at Rep Stebbins um, because we, uh, as the largest caucus, we have an email list. So we know who's signed up for our email list and who's on board and who's agreed. But then we also have a core group of people who consistently show up at the meetings and we track attendance. Um, so I would say that the most generous number would be we have 96 members, um, but we might have folks who because they don't attend as many meetings, might say, oh, yeah, I, I was a member of the Climate Solutions Caucus. So at least over 90 folks. Got it. Yeah, Representative Stebbins, uh, Senator White mentioned the caucus's priorities. And I I noticed in looking through that a lot of them mirror those that the environmental organizations put out when we release our annual common agenda. So what are some of those that you're most looking forward to working to get to the governor's desk before the end of this biennium? Well, for starters, just just to give a sense of how we come up uh, with this list, uh, typically during the off session, um, we will pull together a couple of meetings uh, to ask reps and senators to come with their ideas of what they're hearing from their constituents and what they're seeing in their communities as to what's really important and critical to help Vermonters. Uh, to address the many, many challenges that we are seeing already from climate change. So um, this particular list, we, we held two meetings, I think one in like September and one in October, uh, where we, um, working off of last year's, because it's a two-year biennium, working off of last year's list and looking at all that we accomplished last year, which was pretty phenomenal. Um, although, although we always have way more to do, but still great. You, you got to um, acknowledge the, the good work that we do and then keep doing more. But so working off of last year's list and then obviously, um, you know, uh, there have been so many storm events that have left Vermonters without power for far too long. This is not only an inconvenience, it's really a public health concern uh, when you're talking about, uh, you know, people having access to their medications in their refrigerators. We've also had way too, mar way too many farmers lose like their entire apple crop uh, this past spring because of the May unexpected um, freeze and hail event. Then, you know, uh, how many of our communities were just so decimated and still, still just absolutely... Um, like underwater. <laughs> underwater from the multiple floods. And now we're also seeing, you know, concerns about mudslides. So uh, we held these two meetings in September and October to reboost our... Um, you know, list from last year. And from that uh, came, you know, our 2024 priorities with regards to how they're uh, similar to a lot of the environmental advocates. Frankly, I, I don't think that's all that surprising. I think a lot of the environmental nonprofits um, are formed and listened to uh, are formed by their members and they really listen to their members and no surprise, their members are also our constituents. So, um, not, not a big surprise to know that we have five areas, uh, under, uh, our high level list of priorities that we're really focusing on. One is, um, improving community resilience. Uh, mm -hmm. so really digging in to adopt a, a suite of policies so we can reduce 
flood damage risks and other climate related risks. So, and related to that is how are we gonna pay for this? So we have a couple of um, bills related to municipal planning and resilience grants opportunity. Um, we also have a bill that I believe we just moved from my committee, House Environment and Energy Committee to House Ways and Means on Climate Resilience and Mitigation Fund. Um, oh, is that S, what, what bill that, is that? Oh, that is not. Um, well, in your side, it's, it's S-145. Oh, so you guys are moving on that. Well, oh, okay. I, what, sorry, we're not, Justin. Sorry, we're not necessarily moving on it yet. It's more like that is, um, we're talking about how to structure all of the financial pieces related to climate resilience. This is exciting stuff. So, so our priorities are moving. So that's a big they, one to yes. send to the governor's office. Um, although it's not really necessarily a full full bill yet. Okay, just kidding. They're working on it. <laughs> There's a long way between now and May. Um, so yeah, I mean, we have a whole slew of, of bills that we're working on. Um, we have not updated our renewable energy standards yeah. since it was first passed back in 2015. And there was a working group this summer that, uh, you know, uh, came together in, um, uh, in a format that isn't quite as intense and focused as the legislative session. And so they, uh, those stakeholders were able to have, you know, longer, more in-depth conversations about the uh, unique differences across Vermont mm. from our different utilities and therefore um, how that relates to uh, developing a renewable energy standard to get to 100% uh, clean electricity. Um, and that involved um, many of our environmental nonprofits, uh, you know, trade associations, etc. Um, we're also in my committee very much looking and diving deeply into land use reform. Um, Act 250, 52 years old, uh, you know, there are um, ways in which it has been um, really successful. There are ways in which we know we have a housing challenge uh, and everything that stems from that in terms of being able to um, actually have a building for potential workers to live in and uh, related to the unhoused and, and uh, just so many issues. So we are definitely, definitely going to be working on that and moving that forward. I, I do want to clarify, though, like. Act 250 and our land use is not the only part mm -hmm. of addressing housing. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's about so many other pieces mm -hmm. called, you know, a livable wage, mm -hmm. called transportation, getting from A to B, called child care, mm -hmm. you know. So all of these pieces really go together. Uh, and, you know, that's why it's great to have a caucus structure yeah. because it brings the House and the Senate members to come together outside of committees, outside of floor time, and identify, okay, this might not work, but might this. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of other uh, priorities and goals, but that's that's a high level. Yeah, and Senator White, how does the caucus actually work and function to move those priorities forward? We have a leadership meeting once a week uh, with and we should note the folks who are on the leadership team for the Climate Solutions Caucus uh, are, again, Gabrielle and myself, and then uh, Senator Andy Perchlick, uh, Sen uh, Representative Mike Rice, Representative Molly Burke, and then three new, uh, well, no, technically two new additions, but we did properly vote in Mike, Representative Mike Rice at the last meeting. Um, we've also added Representative Carrie Dolan and Representative Jonathan Williams. So 
to move the actual bills, I think the place that we are successful is when we have our leadership meetings and we're able to think through and hear where bills are coming up. So you even heard um, Representative Stebbins and I kind of having a moment where we were discussing a bill because we don't have time to have these conversations and communication across committees, across the bodies is actually a strategy in and of itself. To work within the system to have conversations with your peers means that we're very quickly able to identify where there's problems and bills are not moving, or there are people that need to have, have had a conversation with someone. Um, so that's where we do a lot of the planning. Um, the other way that we work as a caucus is while we don't whip votes, meaning we are not in leadership on the Democrat or Republican ticket, we do work to talk to members about the different policies that we do. Um, so an example would be for the uh, Make Big Oil Pay Bill or holding uh, fossil fuel companies uh, accountable. We are able to work with the Democratic caucus or the caucus that is moving the bill or prioritizing it to see if we can assist them in talking to members about the value of it. Because there is an accountability to being a member of the Climate Solutions Caucus, where if you're going to say that you are working for these strategies, we want to make sure that you understand and aren't persuaded by sometimes like the easy arguments that happen against doing climate change work. Like someone perhaps saying, you know, with the make big oil pay bill, why are you, you know, why are you working on that now? Don't you have other things you should be doing? Like there's all sorts of conversations that end up happening when people are not totally in the know on a bill and having someone who is a part of the caucus talk to you about the different, I don't know, parts of the bill or arguments against it, that helps uh, move uh, those conversations forward because not everyone is on the committee that's hearing the bill. And it's hard to get information and it's easy when, especially when we're going against climate change, very wealthy interests are involved and have the ability to lobby. So that's kind of our, our strategy and how we move those bills is working as a leadership team uh, and meeting on a regular basis to have cross communication. And then also um, identifying uh, different members of the caucus who may need a little more assistance and info. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, I mean, there's another piece here where someone can be like, yes, I'm, I'm really concerned about climate change. And yes, we need to reduce emissions. And yes, we also need to help prepare our communities for um, the changing climate. Um, so there is a piece there about informing and answering questions and having hard conversations mm -hmm. and clarifying um, dialogue about bills. But there's yeah. also just a piece of like basic 101 yeah. science and education. Yeah. So like Becca had this idea of like, hey, do you remember those water tables from like when you were in seventh grade? Can we bring some of those in here? Yeah. So one of the things we're working on over the next few weeks, brilliant idea, Becca, um, is to bring these tables in and, you know, have a day where, yes, senators and representatives and, and anybody else in the building can literally like, you know, dredge a river and yeah. see, does that slow the water down or does it speed it up mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, put something upstream of a community like building a wetland and does that make it worse or better downstream? So like 
to, to get a really tactile sense of how hydrology works. Because as a citizen legislature, you know, we all come here with our experience, with our own areas of expertise. And, uh, you know, there are not a lot of hydrologists in the 180 of us. So, so like getting back to basics, um, you know, that's a piece also that the caucus can play that frankly isn't, you know, there's a lot going on in the building. And those are the types of things that, you know, the democratic leadership on the house side or, or, you know, other caucus groups, um, they, you know, that is not where they are spending their time. So it's spread very thin. Yep. Yep. So uh, information, education, dialogue, coordination, all of those pieces are uh, how caucuses can be helpful. And I do not know why we have to call everything some word that nobody ever knows what it means. <laughs> Caucus. Oh, yeah. Pro tem. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, what yeah. are these okay, words? You're right. You're yes. Right. <laughs> We're a group of people who care about this issue. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Good question, Justin. Well, speaking of words that maybe, maybe most people don't know, like biennia, meaning that, you know, we meet for two years at a time and then there's an election and a new legislature is created. So bills that do not make it to um, to the governor's desk and, you know, obviously then with Governor Scott, a, a prompt veto usually. Um, Especially on climate issues. <laughs> Especially on climate issues, for sure. Um, how does the biennium structure uh, really come into play when we're talking about some of these priorities that do take a little bit more time? There's a lot of education. There's a lot of discourse. Um, how does it make it easier sometimes um, because you're on a specific time period um, and a, up to a deadline? Or does it complicate things because you're constantly racing the clock and then you've got a new you've got a new legislature with you know freshman legislators and people move on so how does how does this all work for you all well it's really interesting i have um i have uh governor howard dean uh as a constituent and when i was first running um my first conversation with him he was like so how do you feel about two versus four year terms and i was like i like four and he was like i like two Um, so, you know, there are pros and cons just like you laid out, like a pro to two year terms is it really, I mean, it's amazing how much this building gets done. It is unreal. Uh, and, and humans respond to deadlines, right? Um, and there's also, uh, this is, this is the reason when I spoke with Governor Dean, um, the, the reason that he liked, likes the two-year term is because it forces you, not, not everybody is, is great at getting out and communicating with their constituents. Uh, and for those who might not do it as proactively as others, it really does get you out there um, and speaking and knocking on doors or, you know, uh, going to neighborhood planning meetings um, on a more regular basis. And so, you know, some could argue that that is an increased level of accountability. Um, personally, I find it very, very disruptive to have two-year terms. I, uh, I, I don't know any um, really successful for-profit business that plans their business structure and their budget on a one-year time zone. And that is effectively what we do. Like our government planning is effectively a one-year budget. And 
you know, reach re-educating, re like if you think about the the policies that like Ways and Means is discussing when it comes to tax policy or education policy, um, these are really complicated, big topics, and and to get a whole new slew of people up and on it, and then be like, okay, run again. Um, it's just it's personally I find it disruptive, and I wish there were better ways that we could. Uh, you know, make sure that we had really good constituent outreach and accountability um, besides a two-year term. Uh, I just, I would far prefer our governments to be able to plan a bit more long-term. Now, another con to that though is what if you like, what if you don't like what's being planned and what if you don't like who won? Well, that's democracy and you know, you start hitting the streets and start trying to find someone else to campaign against that person you don't like. I don't, you know, for me, I, I err towards, I would prefer longer terms um, and more effective work. But that's just Gabrielle's opinion. That is not the Climate Solutions Caucus opinion, <laughs> yeah. just to be clear. But I, I, I think, yeah, I think you make some good points. So I asked our Instagram followers if they had questions for you, and we got one in particular that I wanted to pose. Um, and uh, Senator White, I'll have you answer this. You know, uh, Representative Stebbins talked about, you know, if you don't like the outcome, you know, vote some people out, and it's it's going to be new in two years anyway, and that's a pro. But some of these topics keep coming up again and again and again, and one of those is the bottle bill. And so Matthew Vigneault of South Burlington asks, where do we go from here on the bottle bill? Yeah, that is that is a question that uh, I was hoping I would not have to think about. Uh, but on Tuesday, uh, the Senate let down the state of Vermont. We were not able to get enough people in the Senate to vote to modernize the bottle bill. The bottle bill is one of the most popular pieces of legislation that's ever been passed. It is the easiest and simplest solution we have to getting waste out of our landfills, which we all collectively pay. Um, and it also reduces carbon. I mean, I could, as the reporter of that bill uh, last year, um, I was unsure of how someone could disagree with the basic premise of keeping it around. And what I have learned is we are actually in a different place on this bill. There are legislators who unfortunately do not understand the way that single stream recycling has been ineffective uh, in actually reducing waste. So for me, when I think about where we go from here, it's going to be having a direct conversation with more people in the Senate, whether they run for election or not, about what the role of recycling and our waste stream, what that is, how that impacts their people and how it impacts our state. So basically, we have to go back to the beginning on this conversation is how I'm feeling right now with certain members of the Senate. Um, and that's disappointing. But it also means that we have an opportunity next session in my hopes, to uh, to improve and perhaps have a different makeup of the body to be able to move 
closer to what the original vision of the bottle bill modernization was um, even four years ago, because there were a lot of compromises that were made to get it to the place that it was. And my only silver lining to it being vetoed and us losing it is that we are now able to go back to the original pre-compromise conversation next session, because I believe that voters will react to the decisions that their elected leaders made on this bill. And we may see a change uh, in who uh, is being elected and how the bottle bill um, factors into that vote. So I think we may have a more uh, a, a, a more pro-bottle bill electorate coming in 2025. Uh, so yeah, that's it's disappointing. And I know I talked a lot about strategy here, but if folks are worried about this, if they're worried that they don't have a redemption center in their community, that worry is going to continue for at least a few more years. And I think that if you can make your voice heard about the need um, to support redemption centers, um, that would help us as elected leaders. So yeah, this is a good question. Yeah. And I think, you know, the bottle bill is something that is so popular amongst the majority of Vermonters and the majority of legislators that I think as long as we remember that when we vote in November this year, um, perhaps we can have a better outcome yeah. for the future iterations of the bottle bill. Exactly. Um, anything else that you want to share with listeners before I let you get back to your important work today? Oh, uh, I would say you can check us out on social media because now the Climate Solutions Caucus, we finally restarted our Instagram. Uh, I think I and was we're going to update our webpage. <laughs> we're going to update our webpage. This was all. Uh, this is all thanks to Representative Mike Rice and the lovely um, support of advocates like uh, like Jordan and others. So uh, I really appreciate. I would say that's where I'd end. Is I really do appreciate everyone who's a member of the Climate Solutions Caucus and the advocacy world that supports us um, to be able to do this good work. It's it's actually a real. It's a. I think it's a real privilege to get to work with the group of people we do. It's so. in, it's incredibly inspiring and. Um, gives us hope here mm -hmm. in the building. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just, just to folks, uh, if and when you get dismayed, just remember that not voting is a vote. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks, Justin. That's right. That's a great way to close out the Democracy Dispatch uh, interview. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> thanks, Justin. Take care. Bye. <laughs> I want to thank our guests, Senator Rebecca White, Representative Gabrielle Stebbins, Representative Robin Chestnut Tangerman, and of course, Lauren Hurl for assisting me. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media on X. We are at VoteGreenVT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative environmental scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback? Email me at jmarsh at VermontConservationVoters.org. Next week, we will be back with another new episode. Until then, thanks for listening.